0: Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host, Shahzad Ghani, and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our guest today is a professor at the Geophysics Department in the University of Chile. She got a PhD in Chemical Meteorology at Stockholm University in 1996, working on lightning emissions of oxidized nitrogen. She returned to her homeland, Chile, in 1997, where she worked as an expert advisor for National Commission for the Environment, now Ministry of Environment, between 1997 and 2001, leading the first regional scale dispersion modeling studies in Chile. Her research interests are broad and cover atmospheric modelling and data assimilation, tropospheric ozone, air quality in megacities, and lately, short-lived climate pollutants. She was the first director at the Centre for Climate and Resilience Research, a centre of excellence intended to deepen our understanding of the climate system, its natural and anthropogenic changes and its consequences on society. I am excited to welcome our guest, Professor Laura Keardo. Our interviewer today is Dr. Samara Carboni. She holds a bachelor's in chemical engineering at Federal University of Santa Maria, Brazil, Master of Science in Meteorology at University of Sao Paulo, Brazil, PhD in Physics at University of Helsinki. Since 2016, Samara has been an associate professor at Agricultural Sciences Institute of the Federal University of Uberlandia in Brazil. She investigates physical and chemical properties of aerosols in urban and remote places. Welcome to the show, Laura and Samara.
1: Thank you, Shazad, and welcome, Laura, to our show.
2: Thanks a lot for the invitation.
1: So let's start talking about the climate risks in cities. So as you know, like more of the half world population live in urban areas. And that's increasing quickly over the years. And cities will know that they're responsible for more than almost 80% of the world's energy consumption and like 60% of CO2 that is emitted into the atmosphere. So like urban centers, they are like these hotspots that of people and energy consumption. So Laura, could you tell us to describe... What's your view on that? And how do you see the cities regarding all these issues? And what do you think that are the main climate risks that cities are facing now?
2: Climate risks are diverse. It depends on location. At least the main risks to be faced depend on where you are. Typically, we have a combination of risks, which is particularly difficult to face. Say we have the problem of water provision. We have the issue of air quality, typically in our cities, and also the provision of clean energy, as well as health problems or the propagation of some disease vectors or a lot of other components that are different from one city to the next. So the characterization that is made over large areas has to be adjusted when you're looking to each particular city. But the common thing is that you have risks that the presence of population in these cities is one of the elements, of course, that determine the vulnerability and therefore the exposure of people to the different menaces that come from climate and other associated threats. So it's always a complex issue that has to be faced by each city. But definitely, since the population of the world is urban already, most of it, one has to focus on the risks and exposure in these cities, in this multi-menace and multi-risk approach.
1: So, for example, if you bring it to focus a bit more in South America, and especially Chile, where I think it's part of your experience, right? So, what are the main risks in Chile and South America? Like, what are the main particularities concerning the urban centers in South America? I guess there's like this huge contrast between cities, but uh, what could you say?
2: This region of the world, South America, is the most urbanized region of the world, probably. We have, uh I think, according to the latest statistics, is like more than 80% of the population already lives in cities, typically cities of more than 100,000 or 300,000 people. Perhaps it's Colombia and part of the tropical countries that still have a more significant fraction of rural population. But the rest of the cities of South America are enormously, very early on, they were urbanized, so most of the people live there. Now, depending on where you are, the first distinction is perhaps between the east and the west coast of the continent. In the case of the east of the Andes, where I live, for instance, we have generally a drying affecting the continent, and thus water provision is a main issue for the country in the case of Chile, but also in the case of other places along the eastern coast. On the other side, we have a warming and an increased in rainfall that leads to other types of risks like floods and also the propagation of disease vectors, the propagation of things like malaria or dengue or other things. And if we start looking into Chile, depending on where you are, then you have to add, for instance, changes in coastal areas where rather than sea level, which is given our topography, we skip part of the problem, but on the other hand, our infrastructure regarding ports and regarding coastal areas, which for this country is mainly a coastal area of country, we have a loss of the beaches and we have losses in terms of infrastructure, exposure to unexpected surges, etc. Towards the southern part of Chile, though, where the topography is not as steep as in central and northern Chile, we have, of course, the issue of sea level rise, in addition to some signs of changes in, in precipitation patterns. And over the Pacific, where we have, because Chile is thought to be a very thin country, but in fact, if you count Easter Island, or better known as Nui which is the indigenous name for it. We are a rather broad country in the Pacific, and there are a number of other islands that are also experiencing sea level rise quite substantially and changes as well in ocean circulation that also lead to risks regarding the few coastal areas and the livelihoods of people. So one cannot look at the problem of climate risks in a simple, straightforward manner like one solution fits everyone, but we have to look into the characteristics of different areas and characterizing the vulnerabilities of the different places quite carefully. In the case of Chile, yes, we have looked into a rather substantial description of different climate menaces, but we have our characterization of vulnerability is still missing. And one of the issues is getting to know the communities that have to face these changes. And within those communities, and this is also general for the whole of South America, this is the most urbanized part of the world, but also is probably one of the most unequal parts of the world. So the segregation of society is immense, and it's a factor that contributes negatively in terms of providing the capacity to face these issues. So it's difficult to talk about it without pictures, but anyways, there is a diversity of issues at hand with some commonalities. And, and I would say that the fraction of urban population is important, but also inequality is also one of the issues one has to face in order to really address the climate risk in particular.
1: And inequalities are all over South America,
2: right? Absolutely. Because inequality is not only a matter of who has more and who has less, it also poses question to governance, to trust, to believing in one's authorities, in having a dynamic and lively democracy that at the end is the way of taking decisions that are respected by the community. So this inequality is not a matter of giving SAM aid to the poor, but also is a matter of making societies active actors in facing those issues. Facing risk is not only a matter of someone telling us what to do, but of being conscious about the different menaces, abilities, and capabilities for facing those risks as a community. This is not a matter of an individual being the hero, but rather of society, of groups, of communities, of people establishing relationships that enable them to actually face those risks in a more flexible, intelligent, and capable manner as is needed. And
1: since you're already talking about the inequalities and uh, vulnerabilities, so, if you take uh, developing countries in South America and large centers like Santiago de Chile, in Brazil, or Buenos Aires, and Argentina, so all these places, they have this very clear social-spatial segregation. So, what are the differences in terms of vulnerabilities considered as urban you know, configurations in the cities?
2: I don't know whether I would dare to give a general perspective, but yes, segregation is an issue. And segregation is expressed, as I said, not only in terms of how many years of education one has or the type of food you eat or the type of transportation you use or uh, how many kilometers you have to be displaced in order to get uh, health and education and, and other services. Its segregation has to do with the governance of those communities and the overall governance of the territories and the assimilation of different discourses we have. For instance, say, sometimes we develop these very colorful plans for addressing, say, urban climate risks. Let's focus for a moment in water provision. This is a clear issue here in the central region of Chile, where essentially the ice on the mountains is disappearing or retreating very fast. Precipitation is declining and we have very dry conditions. So the sources of water are no longer available. So people are are getting to the resources like taking groundwater, which we have not actual or quantitative idea of how much water we have. And depending on where you are, you will have the resources or not to get access to that water because the water provision in this country is mediated by private companies. So there is a bit of depends on where you live and how much you get in order to get access to or keep the water. And while some people put in their properties swimming pools or in some places, lacoons, some other places have very small pieces of green or rather, I would say, arboreous or plant-covered places or even to have a place where you can keep some minimum of survival around your territory. There are Differences lie in the western part of Santiago, where the poorer people live. They have access to one square meter per person or something like that in terms of green space. If you go to the eastern part of the city, then you get nine times more. So there is a huge difference The segregation is not only socioeconomic, but in terms of the temperatures they're exposed to. For instance, housing in the eastern part of the city is as good as it could be wherever, in Finland or in some parts of the U.S. or anywhere else in the so-called developed world. So you have the right insulation for keeping out the heat in summer and for having relatively decent temperatures in winter. When you go to the west part of the city, then the housing is of a completely different quality and the stress given heat waves or just the summer is much more than what you get in the eastern part. At the same time, during winter, the same people are forced to use whatever they have as a fuel in order to keep warm, to keep temperatures that are more or less reasonable. And they use whatever is available And typically the access to energy is not the cleanest one. So there is a concatenation of different issues and problems that result in an overall inequality and therefore vulnerability and even the extra problem of having menaces like temperature stress in winter and summer. Summer particularly, that people are exposed all day around to more than 25 degrees even in the in the night so they sleep badly and their health starts suffering not only from that but also from other problems and in winter you have the superposition of some worsened air quality plus this bad in-house or domestic exposure to pollutants because of the type of energy they're using and the way they are burning it so inequality is so much more than just how much you earn or not. It's too simplistic an indicator of what that means.
1: Right. I like what you said about the colorful plans. It's like when you, for example, here in central Brazil and southeast, we've been having all these drought problems and with water. So people are discussing about having shorter showers while there are still people who have access to water. So that's an example of colorful plan maybe. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I guess my country is particularly centralized. So sometimes a bureaucrat, a very well-intentioned bureaucrat, takes a decision of making an adaptation plan for the Patagonia. But that person probably has no idea what it is, the truth of living in Patagonia. To some extent, that makes you laugh. I remember the design of some of the metro stations Apparently, the design was made with paper people that were two-dimensional, but when they put that in place and people were actually three-dimensional, then people didn't fit into some of these stations. And that's a type of colorful planning that has less of the check of reality. And to make the reality check, you need the participation of people, and that's something that is missing. Many of these plans are subject to some sort of revision by society, but in fact, the people who look into those plans are people that belong to the same groups, academics perhaps, but not the actual people. Experiencing every day, say, taking the subway or the bus or having to take a boat for going to the hospital in some places of the country which are remote and of difficult access or where you have storms and and people cannot take the boat every day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, in fact, this local component of taking decisions and planning what to do and how to make it cannot be done top down. You need some sort of bottom-up approaches as well. And that requires of participation. But participation requires, in turn, of respect of providing the information in the proper language, because that's the other thing. We make these plans and we write in, in very old languages, and not everybody is able to follow that. In Peru, there is an interesting thing when they provide these plans, I've heard that they have to answer the community or the society when they make comments, and they have to answer every comment, not as uh, well taken or something like that, but also saying, no, we didn't take this into account because, or we took this into account because, and they have to explain the decision-making. So that's something that is actually missing to a large extent. And in part of our discourse at the center is always saying, yes, but take into consideration the participation of people and the actual people, no two-dimensional people that fit in the PowerPoint of an architect, so to speak. It has to be done with the community and tested within that community who are actually facing the problems.
1: So climate change is like there is a link with air quality, right? And we know that air quality is also an issue in South American countries. If we take uh, Chile, for example, in Santiago Italy or other cities in there. So what would be the, um, some of the main critical air quality issues that are faced in there? And what is the most critical to address? And how far is public policy and citizen awareness in these issues?
2: Let's start with something positive. Between the 2000 and present, PM10 in the city of Santiago has been reduced by more than 50%. And that, despite the fact that the city has kept growing in terms of population, extension, etc., cetera, et cetera. So that speaks well in terms of the measures that have been taken. And that's very positive. I mean, there's been an action, there's been the political will. And there's been the technological changes that have changed completely the type of cars and vehicles we have and the type of fuel we use in different industrial processes, et cetera, et cetera. Very well done. However, and I am a teacher at a faculty of engineering. I'm a geophysicist working in a faculty of engineering. So what I say, I have nothing against engineers. I'm married to one. So I have nothing against However, for instance, in the case of Santiago, over the last, I would say, already 10 years, we have seen something you, Samara, helped understanding is the the secondary aerosols we have here. We have some indication of an increasing fraction of secondary aerosol, the photochemical processes occurring in the atmosphere. We see an increase in NO2, both from satellites and from in-situ observations. So there is something going on with the oxidative capacity of the atmosphere. And that has to do with two things. One, the sources of ozone, the changes in temperature, the changes in vegetation, et cetera, et cetera. But also the changes in behavior of society. And that cannot be fixed with a technological approach. One can fix the type of vehicles. One can accept or not certain types of vehicles. One can adopt The measures or the standards from the European Union regarding cars, that's fine. However, there is a limit to technological fixes. And one of the issues we have faced over the last 20 years, and particularly, I would say, from the 2010 or so, and mostly so over the last couple of years, is that people have stopped using public transportation and has moved to cars individually use one driver, one car, many cars per family as much as possible when you have the money. But even among the people with less income, they are also trying to buy a car. So you need to change the behavior. And that in turn has to do with how the city is developed, how it's contracted, how far away you work, where your kids go to school, the services in the different parts of the city. And there we find again, the problem of inequality, For instance, people living in the southern western part of Santiago, where typically they are the poorest, they work either downtown or in the eastern part of the city. So they have to travel for 20, 30 kilometers. And you could say, oh, but move around in bicycles. Uh, yeah, but it's quite tricky to take a bike from one of the poorest and one of the most dangerous in terms of criminality places in the city up to these wealthy parts of the city. So the design of the city, the way we live, how democratic or not it is, becomes a question in terms of the air quality and the sustainability of the city. So the issue becomes even more complex. In the case of Santiago, at the beginning was the industrial sector that was addressed. So people made changes rather rapidly in terms of decreasing or changing the type of fuel they use, putting some devices for controlling the emission of particles and some gases, etc., etc. Then it came to the question of mobility or rather the type of technology we had in our cars and that also changed over time. But nowadays we have the issue of mobility in all its complexity, including behavioral changes we need. These approaches in terms of having collective solutions taking into account the distances you have to move in order to propose something that is reasonable, et cetera, et cetera. So the complexity increases for facing these issues. And I think we are getting into a plateau. The PM 2.5 hasn't changed substantially. In fact, there is a trend nowadays we see kind of an increase and that has to do with these more complex issues in terms of energy use and therefore in terms of CO2, et cetera. And that is, even if Chile has promoted the use of electric cars, for instance, to begin with, because the price is humongous for many. And second, because the needs of mobility of the city are much more complex than they used to be. And the way of approaching that is not technological. You have to take into consideration sociological knowledge anthropological knowledge, cultural issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's no longer a matter of engineers, or not only a matter of engineers. You have to combine different types of knowledge to address those problems.
1: Yes, I totally agree. And let me explore your experience on urban resilience, because there's been a lot of discussion lately about the concept of climate resilience. So what is climate resilience and how is this related to risk, vulnerability, adaptation, sustainability, and so on? How are those things fit together?
2: Yeah, resilience, in fact, it's like, I don't know, for atmospheric science people. I saw once an exercise that they asked people, I don't know, in Oxford, and very well-known and very prestigious places. All of a sudden, they came in into the office of a professor and they asked, Could you explain for me the Coriolis force or or the Coriolis effect? And of course, people got like, well, yes, of course. Yeah, everybody was kind of confused about the concept. In the case of resilience, it's a word that's been used by so many over a very long time. So there are as many definitions as there are disciplines around the world. And the question is, how do you make definitions that are operational in a way? Because we could call it something else, but in sociology, anthropology and economics, We try to make such an exercise in the case of urban resilience, not climate resilience. In terms of climate resilience, there is a definition by the IPCC that is taking the time and the effort to make kind of a definition, kind of an operational definition. And typically, in terms of climate resilience or resilience to climate change, rather, uh, is kind of the capacity of a social system, economical or, or environmental system to face an event or events, a trend, uh, a perturbation of potentially dangerous issues by responding to those issues and perturbations by reorganizing in a way that they can keep their identity, their functionality, structure. Identity perhaps is something that says a lot. I imagine that like a mouse, there is a threat. Say climate is a cat that could attack this mouse. And resilience is the ability of the mouse to adapt to that change, learn how to face it. So, for instance, and imagine it taking some gloves like a boxer, taking some defense for the face and the head, so not to get too bad a shape after being attacked by the cat. So there is this ability to adapt, to change, to learn and You have to have some sort of flexibility, this memory to learn from what happened before, but also to learn from what emerges and to transform, to change how you adapt, And how you govern, in the case of climate, how to transform yourself or your society or your community in order to face this new menace that comes from outside. So one can have these different dimensions of resilience, but essentially is the capacity to adapt, learn and not by maladapting to the issue, but by preserving your identity, your functionality, etc. So it involves, in fact, a deep change. And that takes bits coming from material science or engineering in the early, I don't know, in the early 20s of the last 100 years, but also from psychology and definitely from ecology. But rather than fixing too much, In one definition, one has to adopt a definition for operationalizing your actions and trying to understand what you're going through in terms of adapting and learning and coping with a given menace.
1: Yes, I'm going to ask you right away some examples, but like, for example, you're talking about the risks, right? So, and, uh, taking your example, your analogy of the mouse and the cat, <laughs> so how do the mouse run away from the cat? How to hide? And do you have some practical examples, like in cities
2: that have been managing these uh, adverse climate effects? Say that you want to face the issue of the heat island effect. Many cities have adopted changing the coverage of the city in terms of vegetation, in terms of the color of the buildings, in terms of the types of materials they use for the streets, et cetera, et cetera. So one can take action in order to adapt to the new situation of having increased temperatures. And one can go even deeper and transform yourself in the idea, for instance, of changing your type of the air conditioning systems. Perhaps you start building differently so you don't need too much of a machine that cools air and puts away out in the street this warmer air that at the end will increase the heat island effect. Perhaps you can start building differently, having different types of textures and different types of materials and covering with trees and vegetation that doesn't need too much of water because that's typically a limiting factor. And that's not too allergenic or too prone to produce ozone, but you can find your local types of vegetation and try to adapt to the new situation. So that's the way of this little mouse trying to adapt to the menace, in this case of heat island effect. So one has to do some things that are, I would say, lighter changes and some others that uh, signify changing the type of construction you make and changing the type of energy you use in order to keep a temperature that is more reasonable. And that's an example that's been used in many cities in the global north, I would say. In the global south, there are some approaches, there are some colleagues of ours working in particularly not very wealthy commune or county in Santiago. And they're trying to also use this type of approaches, changing, for instance, the coverage of some football places where they had this kind of plastic things that increased the effect of temperature Or isolating, and let me go outside Santiago, let me go to Southern Chile, where the concept of energy poverty, because people don't have access to clean energy, so they use still wood burning, and that wood burning is used in a house that is not particularly well insulated, so you could increase the consumption of energy, but that's not very good. So what people did at the end was trying to refit housings and putting more insulation into the system so the use of energy was less and therefore the comfort was better and the emissions of particles was less. So that's another adaptation you can take in that case regarding air quality, but also the emissions not only of particles, but also within particles of black carbon, for instance. So there are also these win-win situations in which you can look for measures that help you face many problems at once. And also that cannot be done in isolation from the community or just provide a retrofitted housing, but it has to be made in terms of the people owning the change and being in agreement with that change, because otherwise it doesn't work at all.
1: Your research covers like a very wide range of subjects, from atmospheric modeling, tropospheric ozone, air quality megacities, climate resilience. So what motivated you all these studies and what was the role of your primary education? Like anybody special in your family or friends that has influenced you or something?
2: Well, sometimes I say this doesn't sound particularly good, but I'm intellectually promiscuous. I'm open to different questions. I'm curious. And in my background, my personal background, I guess that an important thing is my mother was a social worker. So as a kid, I got to know the dark realities of Chile and also to see the worth of communities when people are empowered for real. So I guess the social dimension of issues was always present. I happened to be in my teens and early 20s by the time of the dictatorship in Chile. So the search for freedom, for democracy, for the respect to human rights, etc., etc., was always there for me strongly. And atmospheric science, being a science that is equally or even more beautiful and wonderful like, I don't know, astrophysics but it's real it happens in the world in the world you breathe so that's the first thing then i studied physics and i think that physicists they tend to be as they are exposed early on to difficult questions with difficult tools they take this attitude of i'm able to face anything and you are looking for the beauty of things and at the same time you are looking for the complexity it doesn't makes you scared if you want. That doesn't mean that I'm self-assured. like any woman that has been exposed to a, a manly world is a bit insecure of herself. But in this contradiction, I think I was always looking for issues that would be super interesting, but at the same time socially relevant. And I think that explains part of my promiscuity in terms of tools and questions. So first, Modeling was the first tool I learned to use as a researcher, as a young researcher, and modeling fits me well because it's this training I had as a student in physics, trying to figure out how things function, and that part of inverse modeling was... The question of significance and error, and I had the chance to work for a, another center of excellence in mathematics. So I put that in proper terms, and we arrive at this inverse problems. And then cities, of course, because cities are a main issue in this part of the world. And then climate, because is the overall impact of humans on earth. And I had that learning early on during my time in Stockholm. I had the chance to collaborate, to know, to get to know all these big names, Paul Krutzen, Bert Bolin, and Henning Ruder, etc. I think I had this systems view, but also this idea of, of trying to making science a tool for change. And I like to learn things. That would be a better summary, perhaps. It hasn't been the most efficient manner of developing a career, but it's been amazing in terms of the things I've been able to learn to collaborate people that I have collaborated with. So I feel happy. Maybe my record publications should be much longer than it is, but I don't know whether that's the point, actually. And and I don't repent, not at all. It's like the French song Je ne regrette rien. Nice to hear. So thank
1: you very much, Gaia, Laura. And I'd like also to thank Shazad and Milena for this.
2: Thank you to you for giving me the opportunity to talk and talk so freely and to be interviewed by one of the rising stars of South America for the next 20, 30, 40 years, perhaps. You have done an excellent work and you are in the younger generation in this part of the world. And I foresee many more questions to come. So thank you to you and Shassad, and we can keep working around the world. Thank you.
0: With that, I would like to thank our guest, Professor Laura Keyardo and our interviewer, Dr. Samara Carboni for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.